0: Only then that which is nameless comes into being.
1: This is Urgency of Change, the Krishnamurti podcast. We want to fulfill ourselves, but are prevented by circumstances, by our lack of capacity, by our desire to be secure. And so we are frustrated. Even if we do fulfill ourselves, there is always in fulfillment the shadow of frustration. Hello, and welcome to episode 163 of Urgency of Change. Each episode of the Krishnamurti podcast is compiled from carefully chosen extracts from our archives, representing Krishnamurti's different approaches to fundamental issues and questions we all face in our lives. This week's theme is frustration. Upcoming themes are gurus, opinion and judgment, and stimulation. This is a podcast from Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. Please visit the official YouTube channel for hundreds of advert-free, full-length video and audio recordings of Krishnamurti's talks. In addition, the Foundation's own channel features hundreds of specially selected clips. You can also find our regular quotes and videos on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook at Krishnamurti Foundation Trust. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, which helps our visibility. This week's episode on Frustration has four sections. This first extract is from the seventh talk in New Delhi, 1963, titled Is there a way out of our fundamental anxiety, frustration and despair?
0: We have not solved the problem of starvation, and probably the way we are going will never, because the problem of starvation is not of a particular country or of a particular party, it's the problem of the world. We are human beings interrelated with each other. We all of us have to solve this problem together. But the politicians and their helpers prevent this. So you see actually what is happening. And is there an answer? Is there a way out of all this, out of this deep, fundamental anxiety, fear, frustration and hopeless despair? You may not know it, you may not be even conscious of it. It is deep down in if you look down, if you can explore into your unconscious, it is there. Is there an answer to this? Now, how do we find out? When you do put the question, it is so easy to say yes. There is an answer, seek God, there is an answer, join this religion or that sect, or do some social reform, and so on, so on, so on. But every action, every attempt to solve this problem, It doesn't solve the essential problem of human existence and his misery, his despair, his exhausting frustrations. Please, I am not exaggerating. You may be satisfied with the little that you have, with your little philosophy, with your little gods. And having a good job and all the rest of it, we say, well, why do you bother about all this? Life is short. And we will eventually die. Perhaps we may live. Or perhaps we may not. But don't bother about all this. Just live. Have a good time. But those who are really serious, I mean by that word, who want, who go to the very end. Who, who try to find out for themselves the answer, who are not thwarted by any personal ambition and personal pleasures, who really want to find out, those I call serious. And it's only those who can, who will, who can live and who do live completely, totally. So, what is the answer? Does it lie in collective activity or the individual activity? Is there such thing as the individual apart from the collective? Psychologically, you may be physically apart, but psychologically is there an entity who is totally separate, alone? in the sense unique, individual, undivided, there is no such human being. We are the collective. I know that's a heresy for a religious man. But if you examine yourself you will see what you think, all your habits, your… Your ways of thought, your feelings, are controlled, shaped by the society in which you live. You are a Hindu because you have been told, or a Muslim, or whatever you are, and you think in that pattern. And there is the whole block which is the collective against the individual. And they neither have found the answer, neither will, because the thing is incomplete. So how how do we find the answer? Having stated the problem and seeing the problem very clearly, not only verbally but deeply and psychologically. How are we aware of the problem first? You understand what I mean? Is it a problem that is put to you by somebody and therefore you make it your problem, or you are aware of the problem yourself without being told of the problem? Surely the two things are entirely different. If you accept the problem from another, it has no validity, it becomes very superficial. But if it is an intrinsic problem, a problem with which you are living, you are confronted every day, battling with it, seeking, fighting out, inquiring, because then it is yours. Then it is your despair, your agony, your frustration. It is like a man who is hungry. Either he is told he is hungry and therefore he becomes hungry, or he is actually hungry. The two human, these two beings are entirely different. If you and I are actually aware of this extraordinary problem of living, not escaping, being aware of it, then you and I, when, this, when we talk, when, give, when the speaker is beginning to go into it, then you and I have a, commun- a relationship, then you and I can meet at a certain point. But if it isn't a problem, if it isn't an actual biting, exhausting problem to you, then you and I have no communication. You live at one level, I live, the speaker lives at another level. Now, how, do, how are we aware of this problem? Please, this is very important because to go as I am going into, go, into it, it is very important to find out how we are aware of it. Are we aware of it merely as, a, as it affects us personally, or are we aware of it as a human extensive living problem of, of man, not of a particular man? I mean by that word aware not merely verbally, but to see the significance, to comprehend non verbally this state of your observation. How you observe this this deep anxious frustration and misery and sorrow which each one has. How does one how is one aware of it? Are you aware of it as a fact or you are aware of it? As, as verbally it is described. You, am I making myself clear? Do I perceive, see or observe merely verbally or do I observe completely without words? Because what we want to convey is that as long as there is conflict in observation we shan't find the answer. As long as you put it outside of yourself, outside the skin, as it were, and then observe it, and if you do, there is no answer to that. Then it becomes superficial. Then it is a surface reaction which you will find an answer to, which will be satisfactory and you will disappear with that. But. If in the process of observation there is no conflict, but you are merely observing, and therefore there is no sense of distance between you and the thing which you observe, which means no conflict between that which you observe and the observer. I don't know. I hope you are following all this. Because what I want to get at is that religion, the religious spirit is the only answer. There is no other answer. To understand this religious spirit which I'm going to go into, we have to understand this sense of observation in which that all, all conflict has completely come to an end. Otherwise, you cease to observe. Then you come. Do what you observe with your opinions, with your conditioning, with your op- ideas, with your hopes, fears, despair and all the paraphernalia of modern existence. Unless we completely remove this conflict in observation, we shan't find the real answer. Which means then you are able to look completely objectively. Then you are able to observe, see, listen, without any directive, without any motive, without any purpose, but to merely observe. Surely that is the only scientific observation. That's that's the only way to look or to listen to somebody, not to agree or disagree, that's so futile and empty, but to listen. So that without conflict you find out if the speaker is telling the truth or or falsehood. And we have to find this out for ourselves, for ourselves. Nobody on earth, gods and whoever they be, can give it to you. You have to find it out for yourself because it is your life, your misery, your despair, your hopeless frustration. And when you find it, it is not an individual finding. It is the This is the discovery of a something which is true, and therefore, what is true is not personal or collective. And therefore, when you find it, then you can cooperate. Then it, cooperation has quite a different meaning, because then the truth is functioning, not your particular form of truth, not your your idiotic, limited inner voice which has no meaning at all. The man who talks about inner voice, it is obviously his personal conclusion, which is psychologically its all very explainable, all these things. So before we go into this whole religious spirit and to really deeply inquire into it, not verbally but actually, not in any sense of seeking some kind of comfort, uh, an opiate. This observation is absolutely necessary so that the mind can look can listen, can observe without any sense of conflict at itself, at its own misery, at its own anxiety, frustrations, and the frustrations of man throughout the world. Because if we are not capable of looking at it, looking at this vast, complex problem of human existence, to be able to observe it without conflict, without judgment. Then whatever answer we will find will be superficial, but if we can observe it without conflict, then we shall find out, we shall begin to inquire or discover for ourselves the religious spirit. For me, revolution is absolutely necessary. Not that the economic, social, level, that's no revolution at all. I'm talking of a religious revolution.
1: The second extract is from Krishnamurti's seventh talk, in London, 1961, titled we are caught in the wheel of fulfilment and frustration. Because I feel
0: there is a state of mind which is above and beyond (laughs) feeling and thought, but requires an enormous understanding of this Process what? of feeling, <coughs> and also the process of thinking, because that's the only thing we have. These two, feeling and thinking. The feeling is prompted by desire, strength, maintain by the urge of desire. Desire always in terms of fulfilment, pleasure and the avoidance of pain and suffering. And therefore, behind desire there is always the shadow of fear. <coughs> A mind that would think precisely without any perversion, without any twist. It seems we must inquire. Into this whole issue of desire. How does one inquire? How does one set about unraveling this extraordinary, subtle thing? That is the basis of all psychological problems. And the urge to fulfil invariably brings frustration, and with it fear and sorrow. And so people, so-called religious people, Say we must put away desire or dominate it or suppress it or sublimate it or escape from it, various forms through various identifications with something. So there is always the the demand the necessity where there is fulfilment with its frustration and fear, they demand that it should be transformed into something else, because desire means conflict. I want to be something, and in the very process of becoming that something there is conflict. And in the process of conflict there is the avoidance and the escape of conflict. And when there is conflict, within and without, expressed in society as acquisitiveness and inwardly as progress. Obviously, our society is based on acquisitiveness, the more, 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 with all its conflicts, with all its securities, And inwardly, the desire to be always certain and to progress towards certain. Can desire be controlled? And should it be controlled? And must it must one give full vent to it? Full expression to it. That's the problem. <laughs> if one gives full expression to it, there is always the uncertainty of what will be the result. And so there is a sense of frustration (coughs) and fear. If one disciplines it, let's control it, shape it, direct it. That also involves conflict. They think what is and what should be. And, of course, if one suppresses it through various forms of identification with the particular group, with particular ideas, uh, belief, and so on, so on, there is still conflict. So desire seems to breed conflict. And to escape from this conflict, it is maintained that one must suppress it, guide it, discipline it. <clears throat> I think this is what happens with most of us. If we are at all intellectual, we kind of shake this up, not to give it full reign. Our desires take the form of intellectual conceits and vanities and purposes and cleverness and the acquisition of knowledge. And desire is always compared. Therefore, hoping to achieve, to fulfill. I do not know if you ever stopped it, comparing comparing oneself with another, one's dress, one's look, one's experiences, and comparing pictures, comparing ideas. comparison, to comprehend. Do we comprehend anything through comparison? And can the mind cease to compare altogether, and therefore perhaps begin to understand what desire is? Not how to suppress it, because uh, is, I think that's fairly obvious when we even go into it, that question of suppression. Though it is extraordinarily prevalent throughout the world, especially among those people who are trying to keep a record of their saintliness, If one suppresses it, little or completely, it's still there, only it takes different forms of its expression. if you suppress passion. Now, passion and lust are two different things. Still the same form of desire. If you suppress passion, and you one must have passion, to live with something beautiful or with something ugly, there must be passion. Otherwise that beauty or that ugly thing perverts the the mind. Passion is energy. And merely suppressing desire does not bring about this extraordinary sense of intensity a passion. But if one identifies oneself, or the desire identifies itself with an idea, with a symbol, with a philosophy, it does bring about certain intensity. You, you know the people who trot around the world, perhaps including myself, doing all kinds of good works, trying to tell people what they should be and what should not be. I don't. I don't mean that kind of intensity. That's extraordinarily superficial. <coughs> Because if they stop talking or doing good work and all the rest of it, they're caught in their own miseries and don't travail and so on, all the rest of it. But there is an intensity, there is a passion that comes into being when we can understand desire. And to see the complete significance of all suppression (laughs) or sublimation or substitution, which is an escape. I hope you are not merely listening to words, Or but are aware of your own forms of desire and quickly swiftly perceive the road along which is going and where it leads and your reaction to it. How you have suppressed, how you have identified your desire with something. All the... the purpose of these discussions is not to listen to somebody, including myself, but in the process of listening to discover for oneself, to see the map of oneself, to see the extraordinary complexity of of oneself, the twists, the narrow paths, the ambitions, the the urges, the compulsions, the beliefs, the dogmas, the urges. After all, if one doesn't see all that, if one isn't aware of all that, these meetings are really absolutely useless. This anger becomes another form of entertainment, perhaps a little more intellectual, but that, at the end of it, one is left with ashes. Words are ashes. And to live by explanation and words, one live, One has an empty life, an arid existence. But if one can, in the process of this, discu- this discussion, really, you know, battle with oneself, unravel things. Then perhaps one can go beyond and above this feeling and thought. And I would like, if I may, this evening to come to One cannot come to it unless one really, not verbally or intellectually, but really understands the, the enormity of desire and all its significance. So, I think one can see very clearly that every form of disciplining, controlling, suppressing, or finding a substitute or sublimity perverts the The beauty of bizarre and therefore makes the mind and the heart hard, incapable of being young (laughs) and swift. I think that must be clearly perceived. And is it possible, trained in a society whose values are acquisitive, whose religious dogmas and beliefs entail every form of twisting, suppressing desire? Desire obviously means comparison. And comparison, if one goes into it more deeply, leads to this desire for power. And, you see, We talk a great deal about peace and love, and all that stuff. Every politician all throughout the world everlastingly talking about this. His God, his peace, and his love. And can a mind that has not understood the whole significance of desire, can it know what love is? And when desire is considered evil, the monasteries are filled with such people. All the religious uh, people are holding on to themselves not to have any more desires. Or at least have one desire for God or for Jesus or somebody. Can such mind see the, the immensity of the thing that world we call love? Mm. Eh? sees the significance of all suppression, and therefore there is no longer suppressing, or the urge to suppress, or to transmute, and all the rest of it, then what is one to do with the desire? It's there, burning. Trying to fulfil, trying to speed ahead. identified with the big cars and the big houses and all the rest of it. It's that. What is what to do? I wonder if we ever ask ourselves that question. Or we are so used to control it, to shape it, to curve it, to give a balance to it, or to approximate it with something else, which is comparison. So we never, can we ever stop that process? And it is only then one can ask what is one to do with desire. I don't know if you if you get to that point, if you got to that point Which means really can one live in this world without ambition? To go to the office and work without ambition. And if you did, would not your competitor wipe you out? And is there not fear that if, one, if there was no ambition, one would just? Fade away. (coughs) So, do put yourself, if I may suggest this question. with their frustrations and their miseries and fears, guilt and anxiety. And then only you'll put that question. Or you may put that question only, or perhaps you'll never put that question, but only suppress it all the time. Because that has not given you happiness, position, prestige, whatever it is. So you turn another Outward expression of it and the inward expression. When one is nobody in this silly, rotten world, you turn inward. But when you are writing this wave, you never put that question. And I think it is important, not only outwardly for the well-being of society, I would. Sorry, I must withdraw that. Society is always corrupt. There's always the seed of destruction and deterioration in it. So you can't better society. You can perhaps gild the cage. But for a mind that really wants to find out, for a mind that is really inquiring, that wants to find out if there is such a thing as God and something with beyond all words. One must understand this thing called desire. Is it right to be desire-less? To be without desire. And if you kill desire, Feeling is part of desire. If you clean desire, there is no feeling. Feeling with all its extraordinary sense of, you know, sensitivity. In that sense, everything is, all qualities are included. So, if one has gone into this question of the implications of suppression, no longer suppressing. Actually it's not suppressing. Not merely verbally mesmerizing yourself that you're not suppressing. Or substituting or you know doing all kinds of things around it and in it. If you have gone that far, actually are not done it or not doing it. Which is quite an, quite an obvious thing. Because part of this desire is discontent. Discontent with what we are. In back of this discontent is the urge for power to be something, to fulfill in something. And most of us are caught in this wheel of fulfillment and frustration. And the everlasting battle with self pity. And ultimately, of course, there is the door to despair.
1: The third extract is from the third question and answer meeting in Sarnen, 1980, titled Frustration is a Reaction to Discontent.
0: Probably all of you, if I may, point out, you are discontented. You have been to this, to that, to that talk, to that person, and so on, so on, and you perhaps come here wanting some kind of satisfaction, some kind of certainty, some kind of assurance, some gratifying truth. And if that is so, then you will find satisfaction very easily, which most of us do, in the kitchen, in some aspect of religion, or enter politics, left, right, centre, or extreme ref- extreme right, and carry on. This is what generally happens. With all of us. And so you gradually, inevitably, narrow down the mind, make the mind small, and the capacity of the brain is so immense, you have reduced it to. Mere satisfaction. So, and if you are not satisfied with anything, if you are discontented with the whole universe, as the question of course, not be dissatisfied because you haven't got a house. Or you haven't got money, or you are not, you know, at that level. So is this discontent, has no cause, and therefore it's a discontented, discontent in itself. Not because of something. Is that clear? Am I making this? We are getting together, are making this clear? That is, if I am seeking, I am discontent, if I am seeking contentment, that's very simple and very easy. But if I am totally, completely dissatisfied with everything, with the government, with the religion, with science, politics, everything. And such people are rare. Such people have this flame of discontent. And perhaps you, such a person, comes here Listens, reads, hears, and that discontent increases. It becomes all consuming. So, what shall we do? You understand the question clearly? What shall we do with a human being who is totally and completely dissatisfied with all the structure of thought? As I said, such a person is a very rare human being. To such a person one can meet, because he is in – please listen carefully – he is in an immovable state. Right? He is not seeking, he is not wanting, he is not pursuing something or other, he is aflame with this thing. And the speaker is also immovable. Right? You understand what I am saying? What he says is so, not because he is dogmatic, superstitious, romantic or self-assertive. He says that if you know, comprehend your consciousness, with its content and the freeing of that consciousness from its content, there is a totally different dimension. He has said this for sixty years, not because he, he has invented it, it is so, He has discussed with scientists, philosophers, great scholars, and so on. And they have acknowledged, some of them, that it is so. Scientists seek that which is beyond through matter. And the speaker says, Human beings with their brain and heart and mind are matter. Process. And instead of looking matter outside you, inquire into this matter, you're in, who, you are, who you are matter. And you can go much more further. That, and more, he has said. Ending of sorrow, ending of fear, and so on. And there are these two entities. One, are you following all this? One completely discontented. Nothing satisfies him. Words, books, ideas, leaders, politics, science, nothing. And so he's in a state of immobility. And the other is equally, will not budge, will not yield. Are you following all this? What happens? When two human beings, one completely from his depth of mind and heart dissatisfied. And the other, from the depth of his mind and the depth of his heart, and so on, says it is so. There are these two entities meet. Is ever clear what I'm saying? It's not romantic. It's not something invented. Something out of. Imagination, this is so. One feels antagonistic to the other, which means he's already moved. I don't know if you follow it. He has not remained completely dissatisfied. Moment he says, I am antagonistic to you, you are talking all that, he has moved away from what is, what is burning. Therefore, he has already suffered. I wonder if you understand this. And the other has no antagonism. Says it so. When this person meets the other without antagonism, without wanting something from the speaker, then he is alike. Have you understood this? I wouldn't. No, I see, you don't understand this. If this discontent develops antagonism, it is no longer discontent. Right? And so he is a flame with what he calls discontent. It's a flame. And the other two is a flame. Then both are the same. Fire is a far. It's not your far and my far. it's far. When the fire is dampened, then the two are different. So, if I, if the speaker may ask, are you, as a human being, living in this terrible world, and if you have followed, they are saying within fifty years the earth will be almost inhabitable. What is your condition of discontent? Is it merely puerile, childish, immature, or you are a human being, totally aflame with discontent? Never developing a reaction against that, being frustrated, being antagonistic, but let that flame be alive, then both are the same.
1: The final extract in this episode is from Krishnamurti's fourth talk in Sanan, 1962, titled, Living Without Frustration or Fear.
0: You know what I mean by being aware? To be aware. To be aware of the flutter of those leaves in the wind, to be aware and listen to that stream rushing by, to be aware of the clouds and the light on the clouds and the deepening effect of shadows, to be aware of all the people sitting here in different dresses and colours, different opinions, different faces, smiles, tears, sorrows, to be aware of all that, and to be aware of your reactions to all that. Reactions of your like and dislike, your prejudices, and go to go beyond, which is to observe without choice, to be aware without translating, without comparing, without justifying, just to be watchful, just to see the movement of those leaves in the wind, and to listen to another without interpretation, without condemning. To listen without condemning, without judging, implies that you have understood your own background, your own condition, so after all that's what we are educated on, to condemn to agree or disagree, to compare, to justify, to resist – that's all we know. And that's our background, the background created by education at school, as well as education through by society – that's all we know, to say that I'm a German, English, French, all the rest of it, that I'm Catholic or non-Catholic, I believe and don't believe, That's our background. And that background reacts. But to be aware of that background and to understand the whole process of that background, not only conscious but as well as unconscious, because that creates the idea, the background, that becomes the authority. And a person who is concerned with the understanding of conflict has no idea and therefore no frustration Most of us are in a state of frustration. I want to be a great politician, musician, I want to be this and that, and I can't, and I am not capable or deceptive or cunning or whatever it is to be that. And so there is a contradiction. I want to fulfil and I can't, circumstances, ideas, opportunity, prevent. And even if I do fulfil, there is always in, that sh- in the shadow of fulfilment, frustration. I hope you are not merely following my words, you are watching yourself. You know, to live without a goal. To live without wanting to fulfil, that demands a great deal of understanding, because then you are dealing with facts of what is actually taking place, then you, you will see. From this there is no… the mind having understood itself, having observed itself, knowing itself, all conflict has been emptied from itself, from the mind. And out of that emptiness there comes the energy. There comes that energy which is absolutely necessary to, for it to proceed further. Because most of us have very little mental energy. As we are in conflict, we are in misery, we are in confusion. And when you have understood conflict and emptied the, when the mind has emptied itself of all conflict because it has understood the whole process of thinking and ideation and concepts and prototypes and all the rest of it, then out of that comes an energy which lives from moment to moment, from day to day. It does everything without conflict. And if one has gone that far, and it's only then that then that there is real peace within oneself. It's not an induced peace. Induced peace a disciplined peace is no longer the real thing it's a dead thing that's why most so called religious people are dead people and that is the foundation a foundation in which there is no conflict of any kind and out of that comes energy, and that energy is necessary, it is there. Then you will see with that energy, that energy is no longer seeking experience, it is beyond all experience. We talked about it the other day. And you will see that the mind, being totally empty, is completely aware. There are no dark dark corners, no untrodden space, everything is alive, awake. And then you will find for yourself if you've gone that far that time, distance has lost its meaning. And then only such a mind can understand that which is beyond words, beyond name, beyond symbol, beyond all thought.